What's the best day of your life? Can you recall? I know that as I thought back this week over my best days, one of the best days of my life was the day that I asked my wife to marry me and she said yes. I, I wasn't expecting that answer. <laughs> so uh, it, was a, it was a good day. That was one of my best days. Uh, I'd like to tell you about it sometime. We don't have time to do that this morning. But another best day that I can recall <clears throat> was a Tuesday in July in 1980 when my son Nathan was born and I was at the hospital. There's some funny things about that. I almost missed his delivery because I was in the bathroom. And then another best day was when I stood in a courtroom in Santarém, Brazil, and Jose, our son, was adopted, was formally pronounced as our child, as our son. Uh, there are a lot of great days that I've had, the, the best days uh, that I can recall. I'd like to hear yours, but we just don't simply have time to do, to do that. Maybe your best day is the day that you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. Maybe it was your wedding, your marriage. Maybe it was when you had your children or maybe your grandchildren or, or maybe the day you retired. As you think about your best days, today I want to tell you about your best, best days. The, the best days of your life, no matter how great your days have been, are still ahead of you. Now, that's not the power of positive thinking speaking. That's not preacher talk. That's what the Word of God tells us. There is a day coming that will be your best days. And I want, you to, uh, uh, I want you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation because that's what I want to talk about. We have been doing a study on end times theology. We usually talk about that as the second coming. But as you can tell from our the four weeks that we've had before, that there's a lot more to the last days than just the return of Christ. And I don't say that to minimize the return of Christ. We talked about that a little bit last week. We'll talk about it again uh, today uh, as, we, as we look at um, this part of the, we're in the fifth session. So this part of the study of the end times what happens when Jesus returns and just after that? And the Bible is going to tell us about a thousand-year period. If you've been around the church very long, you know that that's referred to as the millennial age, the millennial kingdom, uh, the millennial reign of Christ, those kinds of, those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of uh, understandings about this last seven uh, thousand years. The Bible goes into a lot of detail not only in the book of Revelation, but elsewhere in the pages of Scripture that we won't have time to, uh, uh, to examine today. But uh, uh, there is a day coming when this thousand-year period of time, and I'm going I'm to do an overview of it as best I can today to give you some understanding of why they are your best, best days. So I hope you find the book of Revelation, the Revelation is the last book in the uh, in your Bible. So if you go to the end and just start coming back and turn back until you arrive at Revelation chapter 19. Um, I heard a, a 
friend one time talking about when his kids were little that he would take them to see the new Disney films, the animated Disney films as they were released when they, when they came out. Um, and in those days, you know, films like Bambi and, you know, Lion King and those kinds of, the, those of us who are ancient might be able to recall and to remember. Those films, those movies in their storyline included somewhere in there usually a bad scene. And when I say a bad scene, I mean something that was kind of scary. Okay? A bad thing, the enemy or the, the villain in the story would do something that would scare little children. So he said what he would do is as they would, they would, they were excited about seeing the movie, he knew they were going to encounter something that was going to scare them, and they're going to want to leave the theater. And he would say, now when you get to the scary part, there's going to be one, just wait it out, because in the end, it's going to be worth it. What you will endure during that scary time will be made up for after the movie. I guarantee it. That's what he would say. There's a little bit of kid in all of us when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to end times. We don't like the scary parts. One of the reasons I think why we tend to avoid a little bit the book of Revelation that and the fact that it really is difficult to kind of uh, lumber our way through the, uh, the imagery and the, the verbiage that's used there. But the Bible wants to be clear that there is a bad, scary part. We talked about that last week when we talked about the tribulation period. We talked about it being a seven-year period of time where God is going to reveal and unleash his wrath on this sinful world and on evil and on Satan and all of those who have followed him. And then it's really going to get tough. Three and a half years into that seven-year period is going to be the period that the Bible calls the terrible day of the Lord, the great tribulation period. And for those years, that's the bad news. And it's going to get, it's going to be climaxed with a war with a gathering of the nations on earth, their armies, at a place in northern Israel called the Valley of Megiddo. And there they are going to come to do battle with, the, uh, with, with God's people to just ultimately destroy them. But there's going to be in Revelation 19 the introduction of the return of Jesus. This is what we call the second coming. And... And Jesus is going to return, and that's going to present to us then the good news. After we see the scary part, this is the good scene. Uh, and Revelation 19 goes into a great deal of, of detail there about what's going to take place, and also in chapter 20. Now, last week we were introduced, as part of this tribulation, to three characters, more than three, but three characters that we might call the unholy trinity. We're going to see, we saw the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land. Do you remember us talking about those? The dragon, the scriptures say, refer to, to uh, the devil, Satan, the, the serpent, that old devil from, the, from, from ancient times. The, uh, 
the beast from the sea is what you and I have come to know as the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to be revealed who he is and what his true nature and what his desire is halfway through that period of time. And that's going to unleash the great tribulation. And then there is the beast from the land who is, who is called the, uh, uh, the, the prophet, the one, the, uh, the prophet of, of the uh, Antichrist who is going to speak uh, in ways that are going to deceive people into doing such things as following the beast, the Antichrist, and following the dragon and taking the mark of the beast uh, on their foreheads and on their hands of this. This prophet is going to be able to, uh, to wield great influence, economic influence and power worldwide so that if you're going to want to buy a loaf of bread, you're going to have to have the mark of the beast. Whatever that is, you're going to, have to take his mark. And that's what the, we were introduced to those three, uh, those three characters in the story. Um, uh, this they they will they will wield as I mentioned great influence during this terrible time and this diabolical trio will deceive as many people as they can but their days are numbered and they will be uh, wiped out they will be <coughs> destroyed as we come to this time in Revelation chapter nineteen. Now this time that we're talking about. As the nations drive, uh, nations gather in the valley of Megiddo, the Bible talks about the Euphrates River being dried up so that the armies from the east can come into that battle and there are going to be 200 million forces that are gathered in Israel. That's a formidable foe. Just in sheer numbers, how can you defeat 200 million who, are, who have their focus and their crosshair set on the nation of Israel, God's people. It, it looks like it's doomsday, but it's going to be delivery day uh, that day. Now, these 200 million warriors are going to also be flanked by the armies <coughs> of the earth. So there's going to be kings and generals and captains and admirals and and midshipmen or naval people, all these kinds of people that are going to be gathered at the Valley of Megiddo to do battle. Now that's the background for this. And I want you, uh, we're going to read this starting in just a moment, but I guess I probably, because I've got it in my notes, uh, need to deal with something as we start our study on the millennium. First of all, let me tell you what the word millennium means. Millennium is a Greek word that comes from the Greek word kilios, and it literally means 1,000. Okay, now the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, uses this word kilios, or millennia, or 1,000, several times in the pages of the book of Revelation. For instance, you remember when, uh, uh, in, I think it's in Revelation chapter 4 or 5, as the angels were gathered around the throne, the elders were gathered around the throne and they were worshiping the one on the throne and the lamb who had been slain. And it said that there were thousands, angels, thousands and thousands, thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's the word millennia. Now that, 
some people say, is this to be understood literally thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000? Is that a mathematical formula to figure out how many angels there are? Or is it symbolic? Does it just kind of represent an unheard of number of, of angels? Well, because of that, because of that question, do you take the word millennia literally? The question has arisen over the years of Christian study. Is the thousand-year reign of Christ to be taken literally? Will there literally be a thousand or just a long time? Is it a defined time or is it an undefined time? Is it symbolic? Is it metaphoric? Or is it to be understood literally? And over the years, over the centuries, that has been shaken down into primarily three different views. Now, I want to remind you when we when we looked at uh, the tribulation period, or the ra I'm sorry, the rapture of the church, we talked about there being four different views and understandings about uh, primarily about the tribulation and uh, and when it would take place. We had pre-tribulation that the rapture of the church would happen before the tribulation. We had um, uh, we had uh, mid-tribulation that would happen at three and a half years point and third one was post-tribulation, after the tribulation period. We're going to see this in our study today. It's the reason I'm telling you this. Post-tribulationists say that, that when Jesus returns at his second coming in Revelation 19, that as he appears in the, in the sky, that the saints will be called up then and then come on down with him. That's post-tribulation. Then there is the fourth view of, of, the, of the rapture of the church during the tribulation, that there is no rapture. It's just, it's not mentioned, so therefore it didn't happen. Now, in, as it refers to the millennial views, we're talking about when is this millennium taking place? The millennium we're going to talk about in just a moment. Uh, and so we have to be careful that we don't confuse being pre-tribulationists with being pre-millennialists. There are people who can be both, pre-tribulation and pre-millennial, and I know that because I are one. Okay, but primo, let me let me just give you, a, and I can easily spend the rest of our time on this next slide, but I'm, I'm just going to gloss over it, study it out for yourself, Google it, do whatever you have to do, study it out for yourself and see if I'm right. Premillennialism is the first view that I want us to, to mention, and that is that the millennial reign is going to happen this way, Seven, uh, the rapture of the church. The, um, uh, the seven-year literal tribulation period, I mean, half of it being the Great Tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and then a thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, where followers, believers, saints, will reign and rule with him. Okay, now that's premillennial view. Amillennial view... Is a, is a great deal different. And many of the, of the people, the current writers that you will find in Christian, Christian writers tend to, to write from an amillennial perspective. Now, let me give you a 10-second Greek lesson. When you add the, the letter A to the beginning of a word, you got millennial, and then you put amillennial, amillennial in front of it, 
Typically what that means is literally would be against the millennium, against an, an atheist is a theist who's against God because it's got the A in front of it, you see? Um, now, a millennial, an amillennialist uh, would literally be somebody who doesn't believe in the millennium. But that's really not correct of a millennial view. They don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign, but rather that uh, it is a, a symbolic period of time between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming. Indistinct, but we are living in that age right now. And so the rapture of the church or the gathering up of the saints takes place when people die and they go into the presence of God. That, but the amillennial views would say, we are in the thousand year period right now and we will be here until Jesus returns. Then there is the post-millennial view. And the post-millennial view, as I mentioned a moment ago, post after the thousand years, after the thousand years, a literal thousand years, Starting who knows when, ending who knows when. But after that time, the, the, Jesus will return and, and uh, there will be the uh, judgment and the, new, the creation of the new heaven, the new earth, which we will study next week. Okay? I just wanted to give you those views. We are going to look at it from the perspective of the premillennialist view for two reasons. One, because I'm the teacher and I get to decide what we go with. But more seriously, because I don't believe you can read Revelation 19 and 20 and come out with any other view. I mean, he's going to say the return of Christ, the destruction of, of all of this evil that's around, uh, and then the thousand-year reign of Christ, it happens in that order. Uh, and, and so we want to look at what's going to take place. And I want to, to do this... Um, I want to do this by reading from Revelation chapter 19, beginning, starting at verse 11. We read these verses last week. I want to give them a little bit more uh, clarity and focus this morning. Uh, now, get the picture. The, the nations are gathered at Megiddo, ready to do battle with God's people. And something suddenly is going to happen that, that they didn't expect. It says, now I saw, John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself shall rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now we're going to read on in just a moment in that same chapter, so hold on to your 
to your book. Do you see what, to your place in Revelation, do you see what this is about? Jesus is, is returning and he's bringing with him the armies. Now, where'd those armies come from? Well, those armies are, I think, a composite of two things. One, the angelic armies, the hosts of heaven, uh, that have already in the book of Revelation been numbered as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And then also the saints of the ages, those who have believed in Jesus Christ and had been raptured prior to the tribulation, have gone to, to heaven and have been clothed in white linen and placed on, on white horses and sent off to battle. And you may say, well, I hope that's not what heaven's going to be like. I'm not a very good fighter. Don't worry about it. You're not going to have to fight. Okay? You just put on a really nice linen white outfit and get on a very gentle white horse. I'm being facetious there. But he'll take care of all the fighting. The one who sits on the white horse with the name on his head and on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will take care of it all. He will do it all. But this is the, as we talked about, the second coming. Now I want you to see what happens on, on that particular day. Because I, what I picture here as I try to read through this, I try to visualize, I try to Imagine what it's like. There is drama. I mean, these armies are there, and here comes the hosts and the armies of heaven coming down to do battle. And it's kind of like, uh, I imagined it kind of like a, uh, a boxing match between two great boxers. I went this past week, I, I got to thinking about some of the Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fights. Or Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay fights. I guess then it was, it was, uh, or not Cassius, Sonny Liston. Uh, or George Foreman or all the, and, and there, there was a certain drama around Ali's fights. As, and I hadn't, uh, to me it looks like these are two guys just going in there trying to beat each other up. But Ali would talk about there being a strategy. He was going to spend about, Five, six rounds, just kind of dancing around the ring, staying away, doing what his trainers called the rope-a-dope. And, and wearing the, the foe out, throwing punches, trying to stop this guy, and he would talk with him and, and uh, talk trash to him all this during this fight. But then, all of a sudden, Ali would come in with his blows. And by that time, the foe was tired, fatigued from... All of the other stuff that was going, that, that's kind of what I got in my mind. And on the sidelines watching is a reporter, you know, for the, for the news channels as he's talking about, whispering, saying these armies are over here and these armies over here. And they're getting, and this is, this is a, a, a thing that's getting ready to happen. And suddenly while he's talking, a trumpet is going to blast and Jesus is going to and he's not going to, he wasn't expected. He doesn't know exactly what to say. And so the commentary, uh, commentators on TV, get this, were silent. And they're, they're speechless with what's, with what's taking place. And Jesus descends to end this battle in a way 
that we couldn't begin to imagine have we not heard it before or read it before look at what happens in revelation chapter 19 verse 19. jesus said or uh, john says i saw the beast that's the antichrist the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army and then the beast was captured do you see anything between verses 19 and 20 i don't hear a shot being fired but the beast the antichrist was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the edge of the sword, uh, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with the flesh. And the war's over. I mean, did you notice what it says? All the birds were filled with these rest of these armies. Uh, and the battles ended. I didn't even hear anything boom. Did you? This speaks of the power and the authority of the one who sat on the horse. The sovereign rule and reign and might of your Savior and mine, Jesus. He's more than just the gentle guy who wrongly hung on a cross. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he, even though it may look like through all the scary parts of the story of the book of Revelation, he's the one who's been in control all along. Amen. Now, this is going to usher in then this great uh, period, this best of the best days of your life, this millennial age. Let me just tell you for why it's going to be so good. I want to give you, I want to give you 10 reasons, all right? So you're going to have to hurry. This is where you want to take notes. If you're a note taker, this is where, where you want to take notes. And I want to, first of all, start off by sharing with you what's going to happen on day one, on the first day when Jesus returns. Because until I had written this down, I didn't realize how quickly all of these things were happening. On, so on day one, here are the uh, uh, earth's best days. First, Jesus will be, will be announced and will return to earth. There's going to be a trumpet blast and Jesus is going to appear in the heavens and will come to this earth. And it describes him. We don't have time to, to deal with it about wearing the robe that was dipped in blood, uh, riding on the white horse and his name and the sword in his mouth. Uh, he's described, and I, I get the sense as I read this, that he's an awesome figure. I mean, he, when, they, when people saw him there on that Valley of Megiddo, or when people see him on that Valley of Megiddo, everyone's going to know he's entered the room. He is going to command respect, just appearing. He's going to be announced. The trumpets will blast and he will appear and will return to earth. The saints that were raptured up at the beginning of this tribulation period, <clears throat> that's you and I, if I'm, you know, since I'm, this hadn't happened yet. Okay, you know that? 
So if you're a believer and a follower in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> now you will be part of the rapture of the church. You'll either do it while you're walking down the street or at the grocery store or at your job, whatever it'll be, or if you've died and they put you into the grave, <clears throat> you'll be raptured out of the ground if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And you will come back with Jesus on that first day to do battle with his adversaries. That's going to be day one. That's going to happen on day one. And while that's happening, while Jesus is coming, simultaneously at that moment, an angel will summons the birds of the air to come to, to clean up the carnage that's about to take place. Now you can you can read about that in, in verse 17 of, of Revelation. Uh, and and he, it, there it says, I, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, All the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Did you know that, the, that God's going to serve the birds dinner at the day of the second coming of Christ? That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. He's gathered together the birds. Uh, uh, we're going to see that. Uh, and the Bible, by the way, also talks about, about elsewhere about the birds that are going to gather, they clean up the, the the vast, if there's 200 million foot soldiers from the east, how, how many people are there? It tells us it's going to take seven months. After the birds have eaten their fill, it's going to, say, it's going to take seven months to clean up the corpses. Don't worry. God's got that taken care of, too. So, we see this, that the angels are being prepared for what's about to occur. Let me tell you something. Just think with me for a moment. If you're God, you don't do that unless you know it's going to happen. I don't think you call all the birds together unless you know they're going to be needed. You know, you hate to have all of these buzzards and vultures flying into a place if you're not going to need them. As a plan B, God knew that, the, that when Jesus appeared, there would be the need to clean the mess up, and God's going to take care of it. God thinks of everything. God thinks of the details. You know when it says, don't sweat the details? God has already sweated the details. And they're all, everything is already all lined up. <clears throat> Third, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. That ought to be enough right there for the world to shout. Because the Antichrist and the false prophet have led this world into utter complete chaos, turmoil that's culminating with the death of these millions and millions of soldiers and, and others. 
And now when, when Jesus appears, he's announced in the heaven, the birds have been summoned and got brought together. Now is the, um, uh, the Antichrist is, is captured and the false prophet is captured and they are thrown headlong into the lake of fire. That word that's used for the lake of fire, this is the first time it's used um, in the book of Revelation. The lake of fire refers to the eternal place, the eternal hell, if you will, uh, that God prepared and made for Satan and his demons. This is the first reference in the Bible of anyone going to hell. The beast and the false prophet. And remember, this is a future event. You see what? There is a difference between the temporary hell. Sometimes it's called Hades. Sometimes it's called Sheol. Sometimes it's called the pit. Those kinds of places. Those kinds of names. This is the first time this word, this word that's used here for the lake of fire is the word Gehenna. Jesus spoke about Gehenna being that eternal place, that eternal lake of fire that burns with brimstone and sulfur and God's judgment. The Antichrist and the false prophet are the first ones thrown into that place called Gehenna, but they aren't the last. And so, but what we have, Gehenna, according to Jesus, is absolutely inescapable. There's going to be a period there uh, that lasts from the moment you enter until eternity's over, when it, however long that is, which means it never ends. It's an eternal thing. It lasts forever. A person who ends up in Gehenna will be there forever and ever and ever and ever. And the fire doesn't cool down. It doesn't get any easier. In fact, the imagery that I read of one commentator talking about this, it's like when you're having that dream where you're falling, but you never hit the ground. It's that sense of suspension where you are absent from anything, that, absent from any light, absent from God, absent from air, all of those things. That's, what, that's where the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in. On the first day that Jesus returns, no more Antichrist. He's going to be defeated. We fear him, don't we? We worry about, I wonder if so-and-so could be the Antichrist. And we're worried about all these things, but Jesus took care of him like that. And he and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Number four. Moving on, the armies of the Antichrist, then, their leader, the Antichrist, um, has been arrested. Now the, uh, somebody need to get that. The armies of the Antichrist, who are the soldiers along with him, they are then going to be destroyed. How? What does it say? says by the word of Jesus, destroyed by Jesus' words, that sword, that word of God that comes out of his mouth. 
And when he speaks, it's like a sword cutting both ways. And that's, uh, he, he won't have to lift a finger to defeat them. He just speaks the word. The Bible tells us that Jesus spoke the world into existence. Nothing was made that he didn't make. And everything that he made was made by his spoken word or his breath. And Jesus is going to also terminate things with his word. The word of God is a forever thing. You understand that? I mean, I know we say that all the time in church, but it's not just a Sunday school answer to, to questions. The truth is the word of God is absolutely true and accurate and trustworthy and always will be. What God has promised, he will complete, he will fulfill. Not most of it. Every jot and every tittle, every detail will be exactly as his word is spoken. Now that's, that's the, that we need to, that's one of the things we need to see here is Jesus is going to destroy the enemies that look overwhelming. By just his word. Let me ask you this. Get out of this sermon for just a moment. What's the solution when you face things that look insurmountable to you? I mean, when, do you ever have things that you say, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this mess. I don't know how this is ever going to get resolved. I, I, I don't see any hope. This is an absolutely hopeless situation. Let me give you your hope. Word of God. In every situation, it doesn't matter. Every detail that you face, the Word of God will tell you how to handle it and will give you hope if you'll read it, if you'll chew on it, if you'll apply it, if you'll trust it. Because the Word of God is true. The Bible calls itself uh, more powerful than a two-edged sword able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. All of these, these kinds of imageries that are there. Uh, so the word of God, the word of Christ is going to destroy the enemies uh, and the army of Antichrist. Number five, then God's, I'm going to call them their av avian cleanup crew. The birds that have been summoned when all when when uh, the sword of God of Jesus' mouth goes out and slays these hundreds of millions of army that are out there, the birds are going to swoop in and start cleaning up and clearing off the battlefield. Because you know one of the worst things about war is you got to go in and clean up after it's over. You ever seen some of the films from World War II from the cities of Europe that were just leveled. Somebody had to go in and clean that up. What do you do when you have a battle on the Battle of Gettysburg and there are hundreds and thousands of people that died? Somebody had to go in and clean that up. God took care of all that. He had the birds all lined up. By the way, you may say, where's that many birds going to come from? There is a study that's been done in Israel, 
And they studied this because of this particular uh, prophecy. It was also told over in the Old Testament of the migration patterns of the vultures and the scavenger kinds of birds from northern Europe to Africa every year. And they, they talk about that there is a constant stream of these birds that are flying right over of all the routes they could take right over Israel. They're getting their patterns down. God's got them lined up, just coincidentally. And God has them lined up, ready to go. Remember the angel came out and he says, okay, birds, you're on duty now. Get ready. And they all show up at this, at this one day and they will come in and they will clean. They will, they will devour the, the human and the, uh, the horse flesh on that battlefield as much as they could. And then it's going to take seven more months to clean it up. That's what it, it tells us in scripture. Um, and so this crew is going to sweep in and do the cleanup. Then, uh, number six, we've been waiting for this. Satan will be bound, day one. Satan will be bound and will be cast into the abyss. Uh, now, the, the word that, that is, is used uh, for abyss uh, is bottomless pit. But it comes from the Greek word abusos, which means a, a hole or a place, uh, a holding place. See, now Satan hasn't been cast in that lake of fire yet. The Antichrist and the false prophet have. But Satan is being bound up and is cast into the, the abyss. This reminds me of, I think it's in Luke, and I don't know if it's Luke chapter 8, um, about Jesus having the encounter with the Gadarean demoniac. You remember this? On the other side of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> and he asked how many of you who are the, the demons that were in him are, how many of you, what's your name? And they said, um, legion, for we are a legion of demons. And remember, Jesus cast with his word those demons out of that demoniac, that demon-filled man. And they say, where are you going to send us? And uh, they said, please don't send us to where? To the abyss, to the bottomless pit. Uh, because there's no escaping that. Instead, Jesus put them into the swine on the hillside and they jumped off the cliff and went into the sea. That's the abyss that we're talking about. And Jesus, or Satan is going to be cast into the abyss and you may say well why didn't you just go ahead and put him in to uh, to the lake of fire I don't know except for this this is the only solution I can come up with and that is because God's not through with him yet God has a plan and a purpose and it's going to happen according to his plan and his purpose and his purpose wasn't to put Satan into the abyss not yet or into the, into the lake of fire, not yet, but rather into the abyss, and he will remain in there for a thousand years while Jesus sets up rule and reigns on this earth. Those are the best days. You know why? Antichrist is gone. False prophet is gone. Satan is gone. Now, I want to tell you about this, about this 
thousand year kingdom, I want you to understand sin is still here. Um, the curse is still here. People are still going to get sick and are going to die. Uh, as far as I can tell, cancer will still be here. Death and dying, all of the diseases, all of those things are going to, are going to be around. You'll still be able to choose to follow God or not. Okay? And so it's not going to be uh, the that utopia where no evil or nothing bad is going to happen. But it's still going to be your best day. The best days of your life because Jesus is going to rule and reign. There's not going to be political leaders. We're going to have a person who is ruling and reigning who does so with justice and with righteousness and with Truth. Do you see that? And that's why that's why these are going to be your best days. We haven't seen days like that. Now, at the end of that thousand years, of course, Satan's going to be released, and there's a reason for that, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, at least next Sunday, if not here in just a moment. But I wonder I want you to see how how Satan is cast into this abyss. Revelation chapter 20. Are you there? Revelation 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. That, that little phrase right there, if I can step aside. That, little, that phrase jumped out at me. And I tried, and he shut him up. And I don't think that this is what is meant by that. But I, I thought, all the boasting and all the words and all the things that Satan has spoken lies to people for the years. He's shut up. There has been duct tape put over his mouth. That's another reason why it's going to be one of your best years. Some of us are held captive and have been throughout our lifetime and maybe even seek counseling because we have bought the lies that Satan has forced fed us. That we're worthless. That we've caused all these problems. That we're the, you know, whatever it is. He's been shut up and he put a seal on him, it says. Uh, and, and then, uh, and then he, uh, he's been set up and sealed so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. And what's going to happen then uh, is it'll be released. I don't exactly know why, but God does. Verse 3 goes on and says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. Why? Because that's God's plan. Moving on. Number uh, number six, uh, seven. The martyrs and the faithful believers will then reign with Christ in his kingdom. What's that going to be like? Well, it tells us in passages in Isaiah and Zephaniah and different places of the Old Testament about there being 
lion with the lamb and the leopard with the goat with it. You know, there's going to be there's going to be a peace like we've never seen. It, it's not it's, it's not perfect yet. Okay, please understand. I want to make sure I'm theologically clear. It's not perfect yet. That's coming in Revelation 21, 22, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. But this one's going to be a far sight better than what's going on now. A hundred years ago, you were to, if you study philosophy or if you study religious leaders, a hundred years ago, there was this mindset that since the Industrial Revolution, with the onset of, of scientific achievement and, and study and, and with the social reforms that were taking place, the belief began to settle in that, that there was going to become a man-made utopia that will encompass the world that will demonstrate the goodness of man and lead to this place where there's not gonna be the problems that we've had before, the issues that we've had before. Man, did we miss it then. After a couple of world wars and some others that have been just nearly as bad, and after some of the, uh, even after the gains of science and the gains of, in, in society, we have a worse situation than we did a century. The only way things can ever be turned around is if something bigger and greater and stronger and mightier can do it. And that's what God's going to do. And he's going to set Jesus up on his throne on earth. And those who are the faithful believers will reign with Christ through the millennial kingdom, through the thousand years. Um, I, I wish that I had been more wise in my scheduling of time and spent a couple sermons on this particular issue. But uh, um, these martyrs are going to rule with him. In fact, let's look at it. Verse 4 of Revelation 20. I saw thrones and, and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God. This is those who were beheaded during the tribulation period. They will be raised uh, and they will reign with God. They had not worshipped the beast nor his image and had not received their mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I've got a whole lot more notes and I'm about out of time. I just want to highlight. So be ready back there, Caitlin, all right? I want to highlight what's going to, what else takes place. I told you there'd be 10 and I got 10. <clears throat> the eighth thing that will happen during this thousand year reign is that the thousand year reign will be a time of peace and justice that the world has never before seen. In fact, the way I like to describe it is this is the way the world could have been like even after the fall had we only been willing to follow Jesus. It's going to be like that. Sin is still going to be here. The influence of the enemies of God are still going to be here. Even though Antichrist and false prophet and, and, the, and the dragon have been locked up, have been, have been taken out, still there's going to be the presence of those who detest God. And that's, only, that's going to be borne out 
you read on down in, in Revelation that um, about those when Satan is loosed, how they're going to—he's going to go out and he's going to continue to deceive people, and there's good—he's going to deceive enough people that are born or alive during the tribulation or during the the uh, the millennial kingdom age. He's going to ha have enough to put up a, a formidable foe to bring it in uh, to do battle against against Jesus. But that's when he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so so um, uh, Satan is bound. The martyrs that will, will reign with him for a thousand years will be a period like we've never seen. Number nine, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released for a time and then cast into the lake of fire forever. That's spoken of. Let's skip those verses. That's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. But if you will go to number 10. And number 10 is at the end of a thousand years will be the resurrection of the dead and the great white throne judgment. You see, there's going to be, uh, the, there will be the, the first resurrection from the dead of those who were the saints and the believers. Part of that took place at the rapture. Part of it took place when the, those who had died as martyrs during the tribulation period were raised. But then the others who are uh, persons who became believers and followers of Jesus during either the tribulation or and or the millennial kingdom, they've died because death is still continuing. The curse is still here. And then uh, after that, uh, they will be raised and then the dead who are not in Christ will be raised and they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment. And the judgment is going to be this, not were you nice to your kitty cat and did you put give a dollar to the guy standing on the corner. The judgment is going to be, is your name in the book of life? If it's not, you follow Satan to that lake of fire forever and forever and forever and however many hours it takes. If it is, you enter into the presence of God in this new heaven, this new earth, where there will be no more curse, there will be no more death, no more dying. No more tears. He'll wipe all those away. And you will be there forever and forever and forever and forever. Until that day comes, we have the promise of earth's best best days. Are you ready for it? That's the important message for today. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? I want you to bow your head with me if you will, please. Father, I am overwhelmed at the might that you have revealed to us today at your great strength and the feats that you accomplish in us and through us and in our world and through, through all of those that you have saved. I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by that. But today, Father, I, I look around our world and I realize that there are many, thousands of thousands, millions, billions who have never heard 
this story, who have never been offered the opportunity to receive Jesus. Today, Father, I can say this crowd that's here, they're being offered the opportunity. They're being offered the opportunity. Those of us who are watching by way of video, we are being offered the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ, this soon coming King, into our lives to be our Savior, our Deliverer, our Messiah. So today, Father, in these next few moments, I just pray that each one of us would examine ourselves and allow your Holy Spirit to examine us. And if there's one or two or 10 or 50 that are here today that need to receive Jesus, that you would, that you would speak that to their hearts and that, Father, they would make that commitment today. Any other decisions, Father, and any other commitments? We ask you, Father, to just speak to our hearts and cause us to be faithful and responsive and obedient. Have your way now, Father, in our lives as we sing this song together. In Jesus' name, amen.